Luke chapter 22, uh, we're in the upper room, and Jesus is just hours away from his arrest, one day before his crucifixion. Luke chapter 22, I'm going to begin reading. In fact, let me go back and begin reading in verse number 12. Verse number 12. And he shall show you a large upper room furnished there make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Gospel of Luke, chapter number 22. I believe you know the family that's on the screen behind me. Chris and Erica Sisler, uh, members of Community Baptist Church from years gone by, and um, been in Uruguay as missionaries for a number of years now. And uh, I have no doubt that they are in our service this morning. They are a part of our live stream uh, every Sunday. And so, uh, Chris, Erica, uh, we welcome you. Good to see your picture on the screen behind me, and good to see your family, and we're praying that God will bless you there in Uruguay. I mentioned them because I want to tell you a story on Chris Sisler. Uh, we're having the Lord's Supper uh, in our service this morning, and that we are at the place in the upper room uh, with Jesus Christ and his apostles when he started the Lord's Supper. And uh, so I just have to tell the story on you, Chris. Sorry at your expense. Uh, Chris was brought to Community Baptist Church when he was a teenager. A friend, a teenage friend had invited him uh, to come to the services, and he came. And uh, he came um, almost every week for about a year uh, before, uh, before he got saved. And uh, during that time, uh, he would come to the services, and he would sit and listen, and he would watch, and he would observe. He didn't know much of anything about Christianity. He didn't, uh, wasn't raised in a family that went to church, and so he didn't know much about uh, church. Uh, but, uh, but he watched, and he listened. And, 
And he found out that that food and church go together. That's a good lesson to learn, isn't it? And uh, he would come and there would be special events or uh, snack night, the last Sunday night of the month. Uh, and he was just really impressed by the by the food. And uh, loved, anytime he heard there was something at the church that had to do with food, I always knew he'd be there for that service for sure. And so uh, he grew to love the, uh, the food, the fellowship, the spread of food, and all that happened. Now, as his awareness of the food at CBC grew over the years, a time came where he heard that we were going to have a special service that evening. It was the Lord's Supper. Now, Chris didn't have any idea what the Lord's Supper was. But he thought in his mind, I've been to some suppers at this church. I've been to some snack nights at this church and saw the spread of food that they put up. He said, I can't imagine what a Lord's Supper's got to be. I mean, it's got to be. I mean, think buffet or smorgasbord or Thanksgiving feast. And so he was imagining in his mind this amazing spread of food that we were going to have a church that night for the Lord's Supper. And so he came that night. He was so excited. And he came in, didn't see any food around, but usually we had the food at the end of the service. And, and he waited around and he said, He said, we gave out a little piece of bread and a little thimble of grape juice. And that was it. And he was blown away with disappointment. I thought we were going to lose him for sure. And he'd never come back to CBC again. When he found out, when his expectations were built to a crescendo, hearing the Lord's Supper is going to be served and finding out he left hungrier than what he came to church that night. Well, eventually, God began to convict Chris of his sin, and he began to realize that he was lost and on his way to hell. And he got saved. And then God began to work in his life, and he eventually surrendered to preach. Went to Bible college, came back, and we hired him, and he worked here at the church for five years on staff, and then he went to Uruguay. And he and his family have been in Uruguay for a number of years now. But I'll never forget, there are, uh, there are a couple of precious stories I'll never forget about Chris. And one of them is his expectation of the Lord's Supper as a total heathen that knew nothing of what it was going to be. And the shock and disappointment that came to him. I'm going to ask you, what is the Lord's Supper to you? What is the Lord's Supper mean to you? When's the last time you observed the Lord's Supper? How many times have you had opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper and you just didn't care enough about it to show up? And you just haven't taken the Lord's Supper for a long time. What what significance does it have? Is it any big deal? Is it just, oh, well, they're having the Lord's Supper. If I'm there, I'll have it. What is the Lord's Supper all about? You know, it's kind of a strange thing. You, if, you, if you take yourself out of a Christian environment, and if you can uh, put yourself into the environment of a person who has never been exposed to Christianity, you know, the Lord's Supper is kind of a strange thing, isn't it? Uh, 
people get together and they eat this little tiny piece of bread and they drink this little thimble of grape juice. And what's the big deal? It's kind of a strange thing that these people seem to do. And it it deserves us to ask ourselves some serious questions about about what it means to me personally and what it's all about. Have you ever been saved? If you've not been saved, you shouldn't have the Lord's Supper. Have you, have you been saved? If you've been saved, then you have every reason to find the Lord's Supper something very meaningful and deep and emotional in your life. This morning, as you see on your little worksheet, the bluff, the bottom line up front is that Speaking of the Lord's Supper, it is God's greatest memory tool. And it triggers emotion about God's greatest expression of love. The Lord's Supper was designed by God to have an irreplaceable purpose and place in our lives. In our last message last Sunday, we, we looked at the Passover celebration. Because in the upper room, this is just hours before Jesus will be arrested in the middle of the night. It is just one day before he'll be executed on the cross of Calvary. This is his last night, and it's Passover. And Jesus Christ is with his apostles in the upper room to celebrate the Passover meal. And so last week, we spent the morning looking at at the Jewish Passover what it was, where it came from, what it represented, what it meant, what it involved. It was, a, it was an, a, a celebration that lasted for hours, we learned last uh, Sunday. And it, it involved a, a number of things that the Jewish people would do during the Passover feast. And, and that Passover feast was the backdrop. It was what was going on when Jesus Christ gathered the disciples, the apostles together for his last evening with them. We learned last week that the Passover, uh, the original Passover back in Egypt, the original Passover had present uh, roast lamb. It had present unleavened bread. And it had present bitter herbs. It didn't have the fruit of the vine at the original Passover there in Egypt. We learned last week that in addition to the three elements of food that were present at the very first Passover, that over the years the Jewish people added traditions that added other elements. And we had some of those up on the table last week. The, the things that they, over the years, added as traditions that would help families teach their children a specific truth that related to the original Passover. One of the things they added was the fruit of the vine. That was not present at the original Passover. But it was present when Jesus Christ and the apostles met in the upper room It had been added traditionally over the Old Testament years. And it was added for the purpose of teaching the I will promises of God that are in Exodus 6. God had promised a number of things. He said, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And so they, to this day, after all these thousands of years, the the Jewish people who observe Passover will have 
the fruit of the vine, and they will drink four cups during the Passover um, celebration. And each of those cups represents one of the I will promises of God. Now, that wasn't a part of the original Passover. It was added traditionally over the years. And it was present when Jesus Christ spent hours with his apostles in the upper room. And it became a significant part of what Jesus Christ taught them uh, in that occasion. And so we learned a bit about the Passover last, uh, last Sunday. And this morning, we're going to look at the first thing that Luke records that happened in that evening in the upper room. There are a number of things that happened. As a matter of fact, the, the most complete record of some of the teachings that Jesus Christ gave are found in the Gospel of John. Uh, they go all the way from chapter 13 to the end of chapter 17. Uh, there in the Gospel of John, for the first uh, chapters 13, 14, uh, John uh, shared what Jesus was teaching. And then they, then they sang a hymn, and they got up and they left the upper room. And as they were walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus continued to teach. And John 15 and 16 records what Jesus continued to teach as they walked along the road toward Gethsemane. And then Jesus prayed that amazing prayer that's recorded in John 17 before he got to Gethsemane. And so John has the most complete record from chapter 13 to the end of chapter 17 of a lot of the things that Jesus taught to his apostles. The other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give an abbreviated record of some of the things that happened. Luke, in his record introduced the events of the upper room by telling about the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so, how did the Lord's Supper come into existence? Well, it came into existence right here in the upper room with Jesus and his twelve apostles. There's two parts to the message this morning. We're going to make some observations just by going through our text looking at some observations about that Passover night. So if you've got your Bibles open to Luke chapter 22, I'm going to start in verse number 15. And notice with me in verse number 15, the Bible says that Jesus said, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. My observation is, this is a big deal to Jesus. What he's about to say and do is a big deal to Jesus. Could I say the Lord's Supper is not a trivial thing I'll do if I happen to show up at church? It's something I ought to schedule my life around when the Lord's Supper is being observed. This was a big deal to Jesus Christ. He said, with desire, have I desired to spend this evening with you. When the, when the, when the uh, people at that time in the language, when they repeated the same word twice, it was done for emphasis. Verily, verily, I say unto you. It was done to emphasize. It was like putting an exclamation point. It's like saying, this is, a, is really important. And when Jesus said, with desire, have I desired, this elevates the importance of, of what's going to happen. And it tells us this is a big deal to Jesus Christ. Then look at verse number 16. Verse number 16. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof 
until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Skip down to verse 18. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Here's a second observation. This is the last biblical Passover. You say, preacher, I thought Jews still have Passovers today. Yes, they have a fake Passover. They have a traditional family event. This was the last biblical Passover. Jesus said, I have desired to be with you with great desire. And this is the last time until I come back the second time and establish my kingdom on earth. This is the final Passover. You see, on Passover night, everyone focused back to Egypt, but no more. No more. From here on, we will not focus back to Egypt. We'll focus back to Calvary. For all the generations of Passover, you focus back to the Passover lamb. No more. It's over. It's ended. This is the last Passover. From here on, the focus will be on my shed blood as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This is the end of Passover. And we will forever look back, not to the deliverance of Egypt, from Israel from Egypt, of Israel from Egypt. We will look back to the deliverance of me from my sin's judgment. The whole focus shifts. And the Passover of the Old Testament ends. The Passover experience every year comes to an end at the cross of Jesus Christ. And he shifts the focus away from a Jewish Passover, Egypt, multiple Passover lambs, blood applied to doorposts, and deliverance from slavery to the Egyptian people. And everything shifts to Jesus Christ and His shed blood on Calvary. And that shed blood being applied to every individual that repents of their sin and puts their trust in Christ. And of their deliverance from sin, their sin, rather than the deliverance from the slavery of Egypt. The pictures of the past are fulfilled in the reality of the present. This is the last Passover. From here on out, everything will be different. Look at verse 17, the verse we skipped. Jesus took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Jesus Christ took a large cup and, and, and he passed it around the table to the apostles. He said, each one of you, divide this up. And no doubt they took, as that cup passed around the table, they took that, that large cup and they poured themselves uh, a cup, their own personal cup, uh, of the fruit of the vine. And it went around the table and it was divided up so all of them had their individual portion of the fruit of the vine. Jesus Christ, in verse number 19, then said, He took bread and gave thanks and break it, and said unto them, saying, gave to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Jesus took some of the unleavened bread that was there on the table. They were in the Passover meal and Unleavened bread is always on the Passover table, had always been. And Jesus took 
piece of the bread and, and, he, and, he, and he gave thanks. He thanked God for the bread and then he broke it and, and then he passed it around the table so that everyone had a piece of the, of the unleavened bread. And then he did something amazing. He transformed the meaning of eating unleavened bread at Passover. He transformed the meaning of eating that unleavened bread at Passover to a remembrance of himself. When the the Jewish people for generations had eaten that unleavened bread at Passover, they knew that, that it was unleavened because they didn't have time to let the dough rise. They had to eat it with haste. As soon as Pharaoh says the word, we're out of here. So they rushed out and they had bread that hadn't risen yet and and. And, and they were, and it was a picture, it was a picture of making sure they put all the leaven out of their houses, all the leaven out of their lives, get rid of all the sin before you come in, in coming to this observance of what's happening in this redemption. Well, Jesus transformed that. He transformed the eating of unleavened bread. And, and he said, this is my body. And my body tomorrow is going to be broken for you. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it around the table to each of his disciples and said, from here on out, when you eat this, don't think of Egypt. Don't think of eating with haste to get out of Egypt to escape slavery. From here on out, I'm transforming the meaning of Passover. Passover is gone. It'll never happen again. But from here on out, I want you to eat this remembering me. This is a memory tool. This is like a photo album. This is looking at a picture and remembering something that happened long, long ago. And reliving the emotional memory of all. Don't you remember when, when, when he was just a year old and he put all that chocolate birthday cake on his face and he was so cute. Don't you? And you look at that picture and it brings back the memories of what you once experienced. This is a memory tool. And Jesus Christ transformed the unleavened bread into a memory tool that would say to us from that day forward, when you take this bread and you eat this bread, remember my body being ripped into shreds tomorrow. Remember the scourge that will remove the flesh from my body and leave it lying around the ground. This do ye in remembrance of me. And so Jesus Christ transformed the meaning of the unleavened bread in Passover to something that would be different from that day forward. Then look at verse number 20. Likewise also, so likewise also the cup, Jesus Christ made the cup a memory tool. The bread was a memory tool and likewise also the cup is a memory tool. Likewise, also the cup after supper. This must have been at the end of the meal, after they've eaten the lamb, they've eaten their bitter herbs, they've, they've eaten and he's taught, and they've, they've done all these things they've done. And now at the end of supper, Jesus Christ took the cup that they had divided amongst themselves, and Jesus Christ said, this cup is the New Testament. That is astounding. Jesus Christ said this cup is the New Testament. 
in my blood. For all these generations, you have drank four cups of the fruit of the vine in your Passover meals. Every cup of the vine that you drank related back to one of the I will promises that Jehovah God made to the nation of Israel while they were in Egypt before God released them from their bondage. The I will take you out of Egypt. I will rid you of their bondage. I will redeem you. I will make, I will take you to me for a people. These were the four I will promises, and they drank four cups of the fruit of the vine during the Passover meal, one for each of the I will promises. That's what it meant to them for generations in their Passover meal. Jesus is transforming this meaning. He is saying no longer, Passover's over, no longer will you take of the fruit of the vine remembering The four I will promises as you drank the four cups. But Jesus transformed what had developed as a tradition that families used to point them back to the reality of Passover. Jesus took that tradition and he transformed it into a powerful reality. Tomorrow I will shed my blood for you. And this cup is the new Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. The shed blood of all the Passover lambs through all the generations of time were not sufficient to satisfy the justice of a holy God as a substitute for the sins of mankind. And that's why they had to sacrifice another Passover lamb next year and another Passover lamb the year after. At best, As is referred to in the book of Hebrews, the death of the animals in the sacrificial system of Israel merely rolled back the judgment for sin for another year. Over and over, the sin was rolled back. The judgment was rolled back. If Jesus had never come and died, all those who sacrificed animals as an innocent substitute for their guilt would have ended up going to hell. Because the lambs and bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They cannot satisfy the justice of a holy God against rebels that sin against Him. So Jesus transforms the meaning of what this cup of the fruit of the vine is. No longer is it a memory of the I will promises, but it is now a memory tool. To help you imagine that you were there and you saw my blood drained from my body. This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. The word testament there is the word for it. It means an agreement or a covenant. Covenant's an important Bible word. We speak of covenants throughout the Old and New Testament. Jesus Christ said to the apostles in the upper room, everything changes tonight. This is the last Passover from here on. When you take that fruit of the vine, you're going to remember that I made a new covenant with you. And the new covenant I make with you is not a covenant based on the blood of bulls and goats. It's not a covenant based on the law. 
It's a covenant that's based on my blood, which will be shed for you tomorrow. You see, they'd always been living under a covenant. When Israel escaped the bondage of Egypt as a result of the death of the Passover lambs, and they escaped the judgment of God, and they went through the Red Sea, and they went to Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel. He formed them into a nation, and He made a covenant promise. It's the, we call it, theologically we call it the Mosaic Covenant. It's the covenant God made with Israel there at Mount Sinai when Moses went up in the mountain and he came back down with two tablets of stone with ten commandments written on it. And God said to Israel, this is my covenant with you. If you will keep all of these laws, you can be my people forever. Nobody has ever kept all those laws. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You see, God's covenant with Israel is if you can keep all of these Ten Commandments perfectly from birth to the grave, you will be a perfect person, and as a perfect person, you can be my people forever. The problem is nobody had ever been able to keep those commandments. Not all of them. Not all the time. And so the sacrificial system enabled them to believe that there was a lamb coming one day, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, the Messiah Himself, who would redeem them from their sin and they slew, they had lambs slain year after year after year, rolling back judgment, rolling back judgment, rolling back judgment. Why? Because the old covenant was powerless to save them. It was powerless to make them the people of God. You could never become the people of God because of what you do for God. Because you keep commandments for God. Because you've earned the right to be the people of God. No, your effort to keep the commandments of God, leaves you hopelessly lost and condemned under the covenant of law. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short. We all come short. Why did God ever offer a covenant that would promise something that nobody could ever attain? That's a fair question. Why did God give that covenant? Why did God ever say, if you can be perfect, you can go to heaven, knowing that nobody could ever be perfect? The answer is simple. It's explained in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians. The answer is simple. We prideful human beings think that we're better than what we really are. We think we're better than what we really are. We think we're not so bad. How many people over the years have I talked to and asked the question, if you die today, do you know you'd go to heaven? They say, well, I think so. Why would you go? Well, I think I'm pretty good. I haven't done anything really bad. One of the traits of humanity is we're very proud people. We never think we're bad enough to deserve what other people are bad enough to deserve. 
And so God drew up a contract. Ten commandments. He said, see if you can keep these. And if you can, you could be my people forever. That's exactly what Jesus told the rich young ruler who said, good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, which? Jesus said, all of them. He walked away sorrowful because he had his life was a testimony of breaking the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Why did God make a covenant that nobody could ever keep? Well, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, Now, we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Reading the Ten Commandments in self-examination to determine whether or not I've earned heaven is very revealing. When you look at the Ten Commandments from the perspective, if I can keep these all my life, I can be the people of God forever. That's very convicting. You know what I realize? I realize I'm not as good as I thought I was. Particularly when I listen to Jesus' interpretation of the Ten Commandments. And all of a sudden I realize I don't have a, I don't have a chance. And that's why he made the covenant of Moses. That every mouth may be stopped. What does that mean? I'll still never forget a man on Forest Avenue in St. Thomas, Ontario, Canada, that I was talking to about his salvation. And he said, I, I think I'm good enough to go to heaven. I, and he began to list the things he had done. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I, 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 I. You know what the Ten Commandments does? It stops your mouth. And it fills your heart with guilt. That's what Romans says. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. All of a sudden I realize the Ten Commandments can never get me to heaven. I can never earn heaven. All I can do is see a picture of how bad I am. And when I see a picture of how bad I am, I know I'm in trouble with the Creator who made me. The Old Covenant condemns and curses every person because try as we may, we can never measure up to God's standard of righteousness. But tomorrow, Jesus is going to go to the cross. And Jesus Christ is going to take my place. And no longer will it be, if you can keep the Ten Commandments, you can go to heaven. It's going to be, I'm going to the cross in your place. And if you want to know how bad you really are, watch what God does to me tomorrow. Because tomorrow, I am you. And God is going to treat me like I were you. And what they do to me tomorrow will be the clearest picture you'll ever see as to what God thinks about you and your goodness. That's why the Bible says the righteousness of man, the goodness of man is like a pile of filthy, filthy rags. No, when we look at the Ten Commandments, we don't come away from that with a, with a feeling, well, I think I've got a good shot at being the people of God. No, I walk away from the Ten Commandments saying, I'm in the biggest trouble I've ever been in in my life. I am guilty before my Creator 
that I'm in trouble. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'll make a new covenant with you. It won't be a covenant based on goodness. It won't be a covenant offering you something you can never earn. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. A new testament with you. And the new testament I'm going to make with you revolves around my blood that tomorrow will be poured out as a sacrifice before God in your place, suffering your hell, suffering your judgment that you deserve. I will suffer in your place. And then I will offer you forgiveness. I'm going to live like I were you. So that you can live like you were me. I will take everything you deserve. So that you can take everything I deserve. Jesus said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And it's going to be based on my blood. Which tomorrow will be shed for you. Jesus transformed the Passover, which was dying that day, to something new and different. It was a new covenant that I can be saved from my sins because Jesus died on the cross for me. Did you notice verse number 20 said, this is my blood, this cup is the New Testament of my blood, which is shed. Did you notice the word for? It's shed for you. That's the preposition of substitution. Jesus said, I will shed my blood as the substitute for you being punished for all eternity. Then I want you to notice one last observation. Verse number 21. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. Judas was there. Judas is going to betray Jesus in just a couple of hours. Judas observed the Passover meal. Judas ate the lamb. He ate the unleavened bread. He ate the bitter herbs. He drank the four cups of the fruit of the vine. Judas went through all the motions. Judas was with Jesus observing the Passover meal. He was there at the inauguration of the Lord's Supper remembrance that started that night and the Christian people would celebrate from that time forward. Judas participated. You say, preacher, why do you bring that up? Well, I bring that up for this reason. At the Passover meal, the first thing they do is they have a ceremony to indicate that the leaven has been totally removed from everything that's before them. As a picture of the removal of sin from one's life. In the Lord's table, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that before we take the Lord's table, we're to examine ourselves as to whether we're worthy of taking the Lord's Supper. Judas was allowed to take the Lord's Supper. Judas was allowed to participate in the Passover even though he was filled with Satan. He had never put his trust in Jesus as the Messiah. We had a whole message on that a few weeks ago about Judas the betrayer. Judas was not saved. Satan had filled him. He was operating under the direct control and power of Satan. He will betray Jesus into the hands of the ones who will execute him the next day. And yet Judas is there at the table partaking. I point that out to point out something I think is important. Number one, he shouldn't have been there taking the Lord's table. And he shouldn't have been there taking Passover. 
He was a phony. He was a hypocrite. He was living something that he wasn't. But there's something else intriguing to me. Jesus knew who Judas was, but Jesus didn't not give him the elements of the Lord's table. You say, why do you say that? Well, because our practice for 25 years when we partake of the Lord's table is to often give people a word of counsel from the word of God. The Lord's table is a remembrance for those who've experienced the power of the meaning of the Lord's table. If you've been saved, if you're living in obedience to Christ, because the Bible tells us we're to examine ourselves and and warns us that if we take of the Lord's table with sin in our lives, we're inviting the judgment of God into our lives as Christian people. So we warn people that there are some people that shouldn't take the Lord's table. If you're not saved, you shouldn't take the Lord's table. Just watch. You shouldn't take it, though. If you've disobeyed God and you're living in disobedience, then don't take the Lord's table. You shouldn't take the Lord's table. Just sit and observe. But that's where we cut it. We don't police the Lord's table. We don't take the elements and say, here, you can have the... Oh, no, I saw you last week. You know, I'll give it to you. We don't tell people who can and can't take the Lord's table. We warn people the instruction that God gives. You see, when it comes to dealing with God, God doesn't force you to do what is right. Nor does he force you to not do what is wrong. He does not come and say, be saved right now. And make you get saved. He offers you his love. He invites you to come. But it's up to your heart to yield to Jesus Christ. And in every area of our lives, God does not force us. He appeals to us. And then he allows us to make a decision in our hearts what we're going to do. And so when I see Judas at the table and Jesus knowing Judas should not be partaking because he knows what's in Judas, but he doesn't stop him from partaking. He leaves it up to Judas whether he's going to partake or not. That's been the practice of our church for 25 years to encourage people to follow the instruction God gives and then we leave it up to the person's heart relationship with God. Well, Those are some observations. The second part of the sermon will take about 60 seconds. Beyond the Passover and into the church. Beyond the Passover on upper room night, Passover night and into the church. And I gave you a list of four amazing characteristics of the Lord's Supper that were given as instructions to the local church on how to observe the Lord's Supper. And they're recorded in 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord's Supper is a time of examination. Am I saved? Have I obeyed the Lord in baptism? Am I serving God in His church? Am I walking with God? Has the power of the cross changed my life? And am I walking in obedience to that change? It's also a time of remembrance. 
a time to quiet my heart and be and be amazed at the love of Jesus Christ. It's a time of declaration. The Bible says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show, S-H-E-W, shoe. It means to preach or to proclaim or to announce. The Lord's Supper is a time of declaration where we declare, I trust the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ in the atonement of my sin. And finally, it's a time of anticipation because the Bible says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. He's coming again. And when He comes again, He's going to reinstitute the Passover. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to involve. But He told the disciples, this is it till I come back. When I come back, we're going to have the Passover in the kingdom I establish. He's coming back. And I don't know exactly when, and I don't know exactly what the Passover is going to look like when he comes back and reestablishes it. But I know when we observe the Lord's Supper, we anticipate that this is for a time until Jesus Christ comes back. So let me ask you the question to, today. Has the weight of your sin taken you to the person of Jesus Christ? And when the weight of your sin took you to the person of Jesus Christ, did you break? The Bible talks about brokenness of heart. Did you break before God and realize that you're going to hell? And in that brokenness of realizing, did you call out and ask Jesus to save you? And did He change your life? And today, do you look back to that time with great love and devotion when you pause to think about what Jesus endured to make that change possible?